Dad Bod Rap Pod, episode 132. We are no longer the dad bods for this episode. We are now the hot boys. Uh, <laughs> given it, the heat wave that is making its way through the Bay Area. Um, I am joined on the call by Lil Nate. What's up? And my guy, uh, Davey Fresh. Mr. Dave Ma, how's it going? Going well, man. Going, everything's going good. Good to see you guys. Uh, it's hot as fuck in, in the Bay Area. So, you know, trying to keep it cool. Yes, sir. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm there with y'all. My apartment is, a, is about nine degrees above hell, but we're, <laughs> we're thugging it out for this episode. And we have a special guest joining us on Zoom, I believe from the Philadelphia area. We have writer, podcaster, um, all-around cool dude, John Morrison. Welcome to the program, man. Hey, thank you all for, for having me. Yeah, man. Uh, we're, we're just trying to keep it together, trying not to melt here, trying to make sense of a, of a chaotic uh, rap world. John, how hot is it in Philly? Or are you it in is, Philly? I'm sorry. I, I am, uh, yeah, I'm in uh, Philadelphia, South Philly, to be exact, and it's nice. I, I just... Uh, went out to the store right before uh, I came back to jump on this call and yeah, it's nice and breezy. Huh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, you don't got to rub it in, you know, you guys have better weather than us, but I'm happy for you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we have, we have nice weather this summer, but our murder rate is soaring. So <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a, a trade off. <laughs> That's hilarious. So, John, you, uh, you got kind of a, a, I don't want to say a big break, because you've been doing this for a while, but you're going to be writing a piece for this new Shea Serrano project, which I think all of us on this call looked at that and went, oh, I should maybe try to do that. And, we, and then we didn't. Maybe yeah. Dave didn't, but I know me and Nate did. Um, can you just talk a little bit about kind of that, that project and, and what, what made you decide to shoot your shot there? Um, generally, you know, um, as I get older, I, as, as part of my philosophy, I shoot my shot a lot for, for different things. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, so I was actually working on another piece. I think I was writing like a sunrise thing. Um, and I was, you know, write, but also have Twitter up and I'm scrolling and I write a little bit and scroll. And I saw the call that, uh, halfway books and Shay put out there and I was like, you know what? I'm from Philly. Uh, I remember vividly what Philadelphia was like in the early and mid 90s, what our music scene was like. Um, I know a bunch of po uh, folks who worked on uh, the Roots record, Do You Want More? I was like, I'm going to pitch Do You Want More? You know what I mean? I believe uh, Malik B. The call might have went out but the same week. It was within a week of Malik yeah. B. passing. Yep. And I grew up with Malik. You know what I mean? Yep. If you go to my mom's house right now and you stand on her back porch and look out, you know, across the way, you'll see Malik's mom's porch. Mm. Right. So I've known this, this guy my whole life. Um, and I was like, I want to write something in tribute to this record and to our city. So I put whatever I was writing on hold and I just drafted my proposal and I threw it out there. And I had no real uh, sense of like attachment to it. I had no expectations. Mm -hmm. I was like, yo, I'm gonna just throw this out there and see what happens. And Shay emailed me back, you know, maybe 
a week or two later and he was like yo we selected you from like 1100 people and i was looking at the twitter thread of like folks who were like yo just just emailed you it was like heavy hitters <laughs> that you know apply for this thing uh or pitched for this thing and yeah it was it's me and four other writers and we're each gonna tackle a classic rap record that means a lot to us that's awesome um has I know there's like kind of a, there's a little bit more to it. There's kind of like a mentoring component and kind of a, um, uh, it's a bit more structured than just like pitch a piece, write a piece, get paid for a piece, move on with your life. Like has the, any of that stuff started or can you just describe for the listeners like what, what you're kind of expecting out of that aspect of it? Um, from what I understand, it's, it's kind of like a support system from their team that's being established to, you know, help you along with uh, this piece. And they have folks coming in. I, I listened to y'all's episode. Y'all had Dart Adams on mm. and they brought Dart in to be uh, the fact checker on a lot of this stuff. And it, it, it seems like they're creating like uh, a support infrastructure for the writers. We actually have our first uh, team meeting tomorrow. Awesome. So then I'll, I'll have more info. Absolutely. You know, yeah. And, and what to, what to expect. Yeah. That's super cool, man. Um, so you guys, uh, you and your co-host, I think he goes by Indy, right? Yeah. Yeah. Josh Lighty. Josh. We, we, uh, Indy's like an old nickname. We used to call him as a kid. Okay, cool. <laughs> um, you guys have an awesome rap podcast called uh, serious rap shit. Um, I, I want you to talk about your podcast, but what I really wanted to ask you and what I would ask anyone because we also talked to the dope shit podcast once is did you pause for a second about putting a bad word in the title when you were starting it and has it affected it at all but really just please take this lane to like tell folks about your show and what you guys kind of topics you cover and how how the flow goes yeah absolutely um for starters we did not think uh or we we didn't pause about putting like a bad word (laughs) into it uh Josh has a background in sports. He's been a youth football coach for like 20 years or some shit. You know what I mean? Like he started as like a young man, you know what I mean? Like coaching younger kids in football. And he had a background in sports radio, like talk radio. And he was like, yo, you know, let's do a podcast, podcast. Let's do a podcast. And at the time when he brought it to me, I was working a full-time job. I had a night job. I was DJing and I was writing you know what i mean i just kind of gotten back into uh music journalism and he was just like yo podcast we gotta do a podcast and i'm like dog i'm not carving out i don't have a lot of hours in the week i'm not carving out an hour <laughs> in my week to sit and talk to you and this then edit insanely <laughs> like when damone wanted dave to start this podcast <laughs> right and it, it just i just didn't i didn't have the time for it um but as the uh, music writing stuff began to pick up a little more and my DJ and stuff began to pick up, of course, this is like years before uh, the pandemic and the lockdown, um, I got rid of my night job and then I got rid of my day job. And I was like, yo, let's do the podcast thing because I, you know, I have time for it now. And um, basically, you know, serious rap shit is uh, uh, named after the group home record from Living Proof. And it's really just Josh and I every week um, just, you know, talking shit like life shit. But then we also talk rap and and the conversations are really um, open and 
kind of like winding conversations. We talk gender a lot. We talk racism a lot. We talk politics a lot. But it's it's really like, you know, he and I, like conversations that we've been having, you know, I've I've known Josh since like 95. You know what I mean? Like we grew up together. So it's really just us kind of hashing out our thoughts and feelings about the world through, you know, the context of hip hop, through the context of our friendship. So it's it's really just every week he and I, you know, we we come up with a very basic structure and we just talk. You know what I mean? It's really just conversational. And then towards the end, we'll talk like new music. You know, we'll wrap it mm-hmm. up with like, oh, I listen to this tape or I listen to that. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. it's really uh just he and I as friends talking shit for an hour every week. Perfect, man. Perfect. Hey, John, I've been, I've been an admirer of your work for a minute. Um, the stuff you do with Bandcamp is great. Um, NPR, um, you mentioned OK Player. Um, I just want to take it back to the start. Um, what piqued your interest in writing and, you know, how did you get into journalism? It's funny um, because we, we were just on a, uh, another call um, like two days ago and I had to like, we, they, they asked me the same thing. Um, so I've, I haven't really like thought about uh, how I started doing this, but it, it was uh, really, I started in high school. Um, I remember vividly, <laughs> I was roaming around, like I, I saw uh, a flyer that advertised a screening for a documentary on hip hop in Japan. So this is like late 90s. Um, I didn't know anything about Japan. I knew there was hip hop there, but I I pretty much knew like DJ Crush, you know what I mean? And maybe like Shingo too, mm-hmm. uh, you know what I'm saying? So like my knowledge of it was limited, but I was really like curious about it. I was like, oh, a documentary, hip hop in Japan, I'm all about it. So I wrote down the number from the flyer and I went home and I called it and a gentleman named Obona Hagens uh, picked up the phone and you know, I was probably like 18 at this point, really excited about music and excited about the culture. Um, I knew a little bit because I had learned uh, like breaks and, and sampling and production from my older brother. So I had like a foundation. I was making beats. I was rhyming at that point. And I'm just like talking to this guy about music. And I'm like, oh, what about this? And what about that? And it's this movie and da 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 da. And we're talking music. And he's like, yo, are you a writer? And I'm like, yeah, I write rhymes every day. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> he's like, you know, like, I mean, like a music writer. I was like, no, nah, I've never done that. And he's like, well, would you like to write for my magazine? So he had a small uh, local zine called the Philly Word, which was really interesting because the senior writers, folks who had experience would interview, you know, or, or I'll take it back. The younger writers like me would interview like all of the underground acts you know what i mean so i would write stuff on like the mountain brothers or uh badlands like you know indie philly's indie rap scene Mm -hmm. in like the late 90s and the older writers who had experience and the editors they would get interviews with like eve you know um all the like folks who had like deals at that point right um for for like the cover you know uh pieces so I started writing for them and at the time Obona's partner 
in uh, making that magazine was a woman named Sheena Lester. I don't know if y'all know Sheena. She, for a while, was one of the editors of Rat Pages mm. when, in like the mid-90s when Rat Pages was heavy, featuring like, uh, you know, like Razzcast, Saphir, you know, all of the like West Coast underground stuff is when Jay Smoove had his uh, B-Boy Kingdom column that was all focused on uh the project bloat scene so sheena was like right in the mix of that sort of stuff and she came back to the east coast started this magazine with obona and she was my first editor and she really um really like mentored me in this shit i had never had someone take you know, my writing outside of school, you know what I mean? My cat's tearing up stuff. Sorry. But <laughs> I, I never had, I had never been edited before, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So uh, basically that was my start. And then from there uh, I used to write for uh public enemy.com in mm. like the early days of like rap on the internet. You know what I mean? They, you mm-hmm. would get, um, you would get information about public enemy and like tour dates and stuff like that, but they also had an editorial arm. So the same thing, you know, they would have me interview like underground acts or write essays about, you know, a particular thing in hip hop, really what I do now. Um, so I did write for a bunch of different places. I wrote for like punk zines, mm-hmm. anywhere I could write about music that I liked, you know what I mean? Okay. And I, I did that for a few years into my teens, into my early 20s, and then I quit music writing and came back, you know, later in life. And we, we can talk about that if y'all would like. Yeah, 100%. I mean, if, if you don't mind just letting us know the chronology of how, this, of how that gave way to you coming back to uh, music writing after all, the year, after all these years. Yeah, after, you know, I took a few years off and then... Um, I want to say around 2012, uh, a gentleman named uh, Patrick Rappa, shout out to Pat, he was the music editor for our Phillies like local alternative weekly, which was the city paper. And he hit me up one day, I remember it <laughs> clear as day, he inboxed me. And he was like, yo, I love the stuff you like share on Facebook, because I, I never stopped writing about music. I used to write mm-hmm. fucking essays on MySpace about records. You know what I mean? <laughs> so I just stopped pitching editors and right. collecting checks for it. Um, so Pat hit me up one day. He was like, yo, I love the stuff that you share. Would you like to have a, a music column in the city paper? And I'm like, absolutely. Like I grew up, you know, reading uh, alt weekly. So, mm-hmm. so he gave me uh, my own column and it was basically like a, hip-hop like man about town sort of thing i would go to like basement shows i would you know write about people's records people were putting out you know like indie records and i would write about them and then that led to another local gig which led to another local gig which led to like a national thing like red bull music academy and it just kind of kept building from there and then in 2016 like i alluded to earlier I quit my job and just did music writing. And then, you know, now I'm, you know, doing the stuff I'm doing now. Word. That's so dope, man. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so you mentioned, um, and I've seen this from your Twitter feed as well, kind of uh, 
you were a part of a lot of the live music scene that was going on there in Philly at a time. Um, do you think live music's coming back? Like, what do you what do you project about the future of the of the live show? And you know, the let's imagine that there will be a post corona world. What, what what do you think that looks like? Um, I think that. Uh... Kim Gordon uh, from Sonic Youth has a, a quote that I really like. She said that uh, people don't pay to see musicians so much as they pay to see people believe in themselves on stage, right? That impulse ain't going nowhere. You know what I mean? We even see it now where we're, you know, live shows have effectively been killed for the past, you know, uh, few months and people still flock to see somebody DJ or play a guitar in their living room. You know what right. I mean? So that thing's not going anywhere. Um, I think that I, I'm, I'm an optimist. I trust that we'll figure out ways to do it, you know, in a safer manner. Um, I don't necessarily want shows where I'm like six feet away <laughs> from, from every yeah. other person, you know what I right. mean? But I understand, um, I understand the the need for it. I've been super cautious during this thing. I had a crazy um, immune response a few years ago, two years ago, that led to meningitis, and it almost took me out of here. Oh, you know wow. what I mean? Mm. So I'm I'm not rushing to yeah you know, to get <laughs> yeah. back out there. Um, but I I think that um, folks will figure something out. You know what I mean? Musicians definitely have to figure it out because like streaming don't pay shit. So you got it you got to figure some kind of way to, to make money and sustain yourself. So I'm optimistic about it. Yes. I'll throw this out to the, to the, the rest of the group as well. It's kind of like, I have this theory that if and when shows come back, they're going to have to be tiny, right? Just because of the, mm. whatever regulations will be in place. Will this be a boon for, for underground shit? Will the 25 person show Will the 50 person show, um, make a comeback. Nate, I know you're not going to either of them at any size, but <laughs> do you, can, can you, can you, could this potentially be a boon for like the, the underground hip hop world post COVID? That's an interesting theory. Um, I, what I, what it makes me immediately jump to, is it like, okay, it's a 25 person show. Is it a hundred dollar ticket? Mm. You know what I mean? Mm. Like, is mm. it, does it become like the vinyl scarcity Right. Phenomenon, but for live shows. Um, right. There's there's underground rappers I'd pay a hundred bucks to see. There's right. underground rappers I wouldn't cross the street from to see if they played, you know, in my neighborhood. <laughs> um, it really, really depends on kind of the quality level and who it is and how scarce. And, you know, the West yeah. Coast economy is different from the East Coast economy. Right. Like if we lived in New York, I feel like there was a time we would have been going to three shows a week. I might go to three shows a year. So um, it's yeah. an interesting it's an interesting conundrum that you uh, you posit. And I, I guess my answer is maybe. <laughs> Possibly. Possibly. David Ma, who would you pay $100 to see? In a 25-person club, who are you paying $100 oh, to man. see? Oh, man. Are we talking strictly rap? For, for the purposes of this discussion, on Dad Bod Reggae Pod, we'll come back. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's a real feeling. Oh, man. Of I, rappers. I don't know, man. I got to think about it. But, I mean, I, I'm really into the greats, and I, I have a bucket yeah. list that has not been – checked off yet so i would love to i would i would pay 100 bucks to see slick rick with 24 other people you know what i mean okay. something like okay. that 
I see. John, would you be one of the other 24 people? $100 for Slick Rick. <laughs> Slick Rick, 1,000%. Are- yes. 1,000%. Okay. I'll, I'll throw somebody else uh, out there, too, who I've seen before. Uh, years ago, I saw De La Soul mm. with KRS-One, Common, Eminem, uh, Talib Kweli was there. It was it held to skelter. It was a stacked build. It it was either the Lyricist Lounge tour or might have been like the Spit Kicker tour. I feel like it was Lyricist Lounge. Wow. De La Soul or KRS One. I would in a heartbeat pay a yeah. hundred yeah. bucks to see De totally. La Soul. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and KRS One would really appreciate it if you would pay. <laughs> I'll say this about KRS One. I've never seen somebody move like physically move so many human beings at once yeah awesome. at one point he was doing uh it was it might have been the bridges over or south bronx but i felt the floor under me it felt like you ever stand on like a waterbed kind of thing yeah. it felt like that yeah. the we live in california floor. it happens about every six to eight months right <laughs> exactly <laughs> Exactly. No, yeah. Karis one is 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 an evangelist. Some his shit at his peak. He's he's taking you beyond most rappers. Did you ever get one of the tennis balls? I know Nate. Got one of <laughs> I never well, does, got one of his signed tennis balls. Does Karis one give you signed tennis balls? Is that he, he had a phase yeah. of his career where he would like always have tennis balls on him, and he would throw them out into the crowd, and it would become this weird thing of people, you know, like a baseball Trying game, like a foul yeah, ball. Yeah. And like pockets yeah. of the crowd would like erupt trying to catch the tennis ball. It's like a very odd time where I was <laughs> when I was still going to a lot of shows. And he did it once in this tiny club called Palookaville in Santa Cruz, California. That's like a 200 person cap, like maybe like 150 with no fire marshal kind of vibe. And I was like, this is dangerous. Like, right. <laughs> but it was awesome. It was an AC alone KRS one show. And the two planes of existence, those two guys were on at the time were so extremely different ac alone was still doing book of human language kind of stuff like yeah. different kinds of sermons and then krs1 just came out and like destroyed on an Ridic. energy level it was so yeah. cool yeah wow very memorable yeah. uh, we, we need to kind of wrap up but i would love it if you would kind of give us the the three minute version of what kind of stuff you play on your radio show and what it's like having a radio show in 2020 um the the radio show is uh, Culture Cipher Radio, a Ghostface reference, um, and basically it's the 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 station that is on WXPN has been in existence for forty years, over forty years. Um, this is the only hip hop centered radio show they've ever had. They generally do uh, like they they have a, a long history in like the cities like folk music you know, uh, uh, scene and, and like legacy rock music kind of thing. This, this is the kind of station that will play like on Bruce Springsteen's birthday. They'll do a whole sure. block. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, so I was approached to do a radio show for them because they wanted, you know, a hip hop show and, and a different kind of energy. Um, so my show, I play a ton of rap records, but then I also play, like I play stuff like uh, Frank Zappa, uh, Plastic People of the Universe, which is like the Jizza Cold World sample, you know what I mean? Right. Or I'll play, you know, like a Ornette Coleman side. It's really, uh, I'm really inspired by like the 70s, like freeform radio format. So okay. I play all kind of wild shit, 
you know what I mean? It's a rap show, but it ain't really a rap show. It's it's like yeah. a broad take on what is hip hop and what, you know, can be a sample or what can be, you know, used in hip hop. But I, I just I play a lot of stuff. It's uh FM radio and it's a super strong signal on FM radio. Like it ain't like it's left of the dial, but it ain't like, you know, you get it crystal clear. My mom listens to it. You know what I mean? It gets it like crystal clear. Um, So it's cool. It's cool to be playing like AC alone on at like eight o'clock on a Friday night on (laughs) FM radio. And it's just blasting out there. And it's like, Oh, now here's sunrise. You know what I'm saying? Like, so it's, it's cool to do it. And um, you know, I don't get uh, the, the, the station managers, they support what I'm doing. Like, they're not like, yo, like I, I played, um, the Miles Davis and Bill Laswell record, uh, Panthalassa, which has like these long stretches of like drones and ambient sounds and noise and shit. And nobody like sweated me for playing that. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) So it's really, it's really cool for them to just, uh, they really just like give me the keys once a month. And I just, you know, I let it go. That's That's dope, man. Yeah. Uh, so we want to thank you for coming on the program. We want to definitely let everyone know, check out Serious Rap Shit Podcast, as well as your radio show. Folks can get that at wxpn.org. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. just xpn.org. Yeah. XPN, xpn.org. Just, yeah. Let me double check. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> on the yeah, yeah, internet. It's, it's just xpn.org. xpn.org, Culture Cypher Radio. Thanks for coming on, John. We really appreciate it. Thank you all for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, man. Great to have you. Talk to you soon, man. Thank you. Right, Dad Bod Rap Pod. We are back with another dope interview for you, the listening audience. Today, joining us in Zoom is a musician with a really incredible, eclectic new project out that everybody should check out. We want to welcome Sterling Tolls to the program. How's it going, man? Well, I'm done. Chilling, man. I'm good. Good to hear you, man. Yeah. So, are you are you hitting us up from Detroit right now? Yep. Right on the east. Todd, man. <laughs> uh, that's so dope. We were talking about when you first jumped on that your your space looks very Detroit. Like, this is how we imagine Detroit to be. <laughs> that's when they built some San Jose to, kids. To last. <laughs> that's dope. Um, so, manager on McNichols. Let's get into it. This manger. Is manger on McNichols. Right. Oh, that makes a lot more sense. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Major on McNichols. My yeah. apologies. Um, new project that you have out uh, collaboration with with Boldy James. Right. Um, tell us how that came into being because it's a new project, but you guys have been working together for for a while, right? Yeah, that's my little bro, man. Like we uh, we've been brothers since two thousand, man. And uh, so in the year two thousand. He came to my crib through a friend of mine. So I was starting a recording studio. 
and uh, just got an 1880, which at the time was like all the rave because 1880 was the digital recorder everybody was on. This is just before DAWs and stuff. So um, our first order of business was to do a, um, a mix, a compilation basically. And we had an artist on there to come for the compilation to record. And uh, he brought his little brother and this other guy with him. And the other guy with, with his little brother was Bodhi. And uh, Bodhi wasn't even there to record. He was just there to, to watch his, his friend's brother record the song. But uh, as the legend goes, there was a very attractive woman there with uh, the guy recording. And he wasn't too focused on the song. And it was taking forever to get done. And Bodhi was in the corner saying lyrics under his breath. And the producer of the song, he turned to him, he was like, hey, let me hear that. And he starts saying it. He's like, can you do this over your beat? And he's like, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> Bodhi got up to the mic. Bodhi did the entire song in one take. Whoa. And wow. it was like five minutes too. Yeah, we, me and him talked about, we probably gonna release that song one day. He was 17 years old. Dope. And uh, it still holds up to this day. But uh, one take, that was it. And afterwards he was like, man, can I still come through and record? I'm like, anytime. So the funny thing was he would always come through. A lot of his friends wouldn't because I wouldn't let people smoke and drink in the house. So uh, it was like only people that were really serious came and stayed and he was one of those people. So, so for about seven years, he would just come over. He would like bring beats from other people or he would like bring instrumentals from something else and record songs and I would let him. And I was working on another project at the time. so. He had yet to rap over my music. He didn't rap over my music until 2007. So what you hear is just the period before his career began from 2007 to 2010. And so one of the last songs we recorded, which is the last song on the record, uh, God Flit, was eventually what will become uh, Getting Flit, which was on the Cool Kids mixtape that started his career. So yeah. he kind of went from working with me to working with Chuck and then he was off to the races. And so from 2010 on, I was just kind of chilling and, you know, disoriented because I kept having these floods in my basement where I kept having to move records around and all this stuff. And, you know, I like your setup is important to production. Like, you know, where everything is at and where you're going to pull everything from. And so because I was so disoriented, I wasn't making too much new music. But I kept meeting musicians for some reason, um, along with like a bunch of guys coming back to the city who were like world-class jazz musicians, young guys that were just getting reacclimated into the scene. And I'm like building with them. And next thing you know, everybody's recording on this stuff. So I spent years just tracking, tracking musicians, tracking musicians, tracking musicians, and it got to a point where it's like, damn, I gotta go, I gotta edit this and arrange this, <laughs> put this all together, you know? And so that's what a lot of the process was. So his vocals, what he originally rapped to was like, just skeletal boom bap, like chop sample, okay. kick snare hat, you know? Um, but as I recorded more people, I began to compose the music around his vocals. Mm. So it was more like the, the you know, the music was written to his vocals and his vocals were into the music. Mm. 
Yeah, it's such an interesting project. And um, he has three records this year. So it sets up this interesting dynamic, right? It's like you have your Alchemist project, your Jay Versace project, and then kind of this artful take that you produced. And it's, um, I think it's, it's one of the most original sounding rap records to come out in recent memory. And I guess I I just want to say, like, I love how densely layered it is. It's almost like I'm a lyrics guy. I always listen to the lyrics first and I love to pick apart different like illusions or references or things like that. On this record, the lyrics are relatively straightforward, but the music is so much depth. Like there's just so many different things going on. So I guess there's a question coming. Don't worry. Uh, (laughs) No, I'm good. I'm listening. (laughs) um, So I guess, I guess the question I want to ask you is this at certain times, was there way more to it? and you scaled it back to be more hip hop? Or was it like fully orchestrated at a certain point? Or like, are we hearing the versions that are mainly what you had in mind from the beginning? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I mean, honestly, I didn't know where it was going. Okay. Because here's a weird thing, like the the machine that I was using in 1880 that I tracked everything into, it's set up so where you can record up to six tracks. And after you record six tracks, you have to begin bouncing multiple tracks on the one track. So say if I have like the bass on, on one track, I have the, the uh, flute on another track, I have to basically consolidate those down to one track to open up two more tracks to record something else. So it allows you to track up to 16 different things on one track, but you can't listen to all those things that you recorded at the same time. So I didn't even know what all these instruments sounded like together until like the last year or two of recording it. Mm. So a lot of it for me was kind of in the dark because I wasn't able, I was able, I could only work on it in pieces, you know? So I didn't know what it was going to sound like ultimately. So in a lot of ways, it just kept expanding. A lot of the stuff I didn't intend for it to be as elaborate as it (laughs) came out. But one thing that I wanted to do, kind of to your point, was create, I feel like in a lot of hip hop, the, the music acts as the backdrop for the rapper, right? Mm-hmm. And I really wanted to dis- dismiss that relationship to where I'm really close to him. Like, that's my little brother. So my intention was to create a sound around him that became the living, breathing, functioning environment that he was immersed in. That's why the vocals aren't mixed in front of everything. It's basically like you're listening him, listening to him inside of the contraption that is his reality, as if you're watching a fish within the water that it's immersed in. Mm. So, like, I wanted to show, like, this is a, he's straightforward, like you said. But he's in very complicated, very dense, very layered, very fragile, very ever-changing circumstances. That moment to moment, you don't know what the hell is happening. And it gets hectic and it gets overwhelming. And it's and a lot is happening, but like that is the reality. And so I wanted to kind of like create a picture uh around him. That, that embodied that, you know, like one thing I kept in mind a lot of times recording this was like, I wanted this to be like a Detroit version of City of God, the, the film, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and also like just very influenced by like uh, Radiohead, uh, Kid A and OK Computer, 
and Stereo Labs, Dots and Loops, and uh, you know, Farrell Sanders, Black Unity, and Eddie Gale's um, Black Rhythms Happening, like where it's so many layers that you, you kind of have to just immerse yourself in the experience, you know? That's so dope, man. Thank you for um, expanding on that. Um, you know what, I was trying to get more information on you and you know, it's, it's, it wasn't that much available, man. So, but I was able to find the Stereo Gum interview and, um, yeah. and in it, it was a great, it was a great um, dialogue that you had. But one of your quotes was, uh, we are not careerists with music, but we're culturalists documenting Detroit. And, you know, I, find, I found that really fascinating. And I, if you don't mind, just sort of expanding on that a little bit more for us of sort of what you do within the culture of Detroit and how that impacts the music industry and, and just how that intersected with your career. Absolutely. Um, so I got into the hip hop scene very early, um, national and local. Um, and locally, um, I started to be on the scene probably when I was about 15, 16. And uh, at that time, you got to understand, this is like the second wave of Detroit hip hop. So the first wave, there were a few artists that were like trying to break through to a national level. But we're talking about a time in which it's like either you have to be from the the West Coast, the East Coast, or on rap a lot. <laughs> and that was it, <laughs> you know. And, and so we had some guys in that first wave that made great efforts, but I think the rest of the country wasn't ready to hear them. Mm. And then we kind of had like the scene that emerged from that to where like the, you know, there was this like worldwide backpack underground movement kind of happening where like you saw a similar sentiment that was kind of like, emerging from the sentiment of the native tongues to where, you know, like, you know, a bunch of guys in the scene start like finding, uh, you know, the 5% nation and, you know, like cats start growing locks and wearing backpacks and chew sticks and, and like, you know what I mean? And, like we are listening to Souls of Mischief and like, you know, and all that stuff, you know, and, and so like none of us thought that anybody would make it. Right, like it was far gone. Like the first person that it was like, wait a minute, what's happening probably was Dilla, right? Because Dilla was a guy that we had known for years. I, w I didn't know him personally, but he was really close to my man, Wajid. And like, he was producing for everybody. He was the first person, like when word got out that he had started working with Tip and Shahid, it was like, what? Like, that can't happen. That doesn't happen to us. <laughs> right? And it was like, whoa, you know, what's going on? So it wasn't until the late 90s that guys start feeling like they can do this for a living. You know, when they saw M finally get on in 99 and uh, other guys start to make strides. So for us, a lot of times, there was a deep sense of community. Like, we all shared each other's equipment. You know, we all taught each other how to record and do everything. So there's a very intense brotherhood amongst all these guys that are kind of from the scene here. And for me, it was like that always trumped everything because I had a cousin that was actually in the hip-hop business growing up. And a few times I would go out to New York and, and build with him. Right. And 
he was one of the first promoters of hip hop music in the South. So he, he was responsible for getting the Stetsasonic records everywhere, the Mantronics records and uh, Schoolie D and Ice-T and all these people, right? He parlayed that into a, um, a situation at Def Jam where he was marketing director and then he was at Electra when Dante Ross was there and all of this stuff. And so I would go around, I was a teenager, I would go around to these label offices with him and I would see how people would talk about artists. And it was like, oh, it just turned me off. Like, this, <laughs> yeah. like yeah. you realize that these guys are products now, mm. right? And for me, like just living in the nature of the city and the intensity sometimes of living in the city, I need to have the ability to express freely for my sanity. And Bodhi comes from that same cloth. Mm. So we have to let go of any pursuits of our position or standing in the world to be able to explore the things that we need to within ourselves. And so we're willing to do that at the expense of pandering to an audience, right? So I, to be real with you, I was surprised as hell that the album kind of like took off the way it did. Cause I, <laughs> really? I, thought, I swear, I went to sleep the night, night before expecting to wake up the crickets. <laughs> right and then really? i wake up and it's like stereo gum causing a masterpiece and, blah, 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 and i'm getting like every five minutes it's like i'm getting shit and it's like wait a minute we didn't even talk to anybody like <laughs> how did this happen right because to be real uh -huh. with you i was just grateful he let me put the record out yeah right yeah. because you know my thing was i knew that this was going to be a little bit of a challenge for perhaps the people that have a particular orientation into what yep. they're familiar with, you know? Yep. And I knew I was like fucking up the party a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, in, a, in, a, in a good way though, in a good way. Yeah, so, you know, like I, I didn't know, I didn't know how that was gonna be. And I really, to be mm. real with you, I didn't care either. I just was happy okay. and delighted day. You know, because one thing about it, and going back to the thing about being a, a culturalist before a careerist, mm -hmm. is for me, um, I feel like somebody has to, somebody has to make a pure statement. Mm -hmm. You know, like yeah. somebody got to take the, take the, take the L for the team. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like somebody <laughs> has to, somebody has to, to speak with clear and utter clarity of you know like the purest of intentions and, and and that was that was the thing for me to like because i know how excited i get when i hear something that feels like it's completely unaffected by what's happening in a landscape mm. where it feels like you're an experience like i would always think about miles davis where he would say like he said something to the effect of like i don't care what you want to hear you you're coming with me mm. you know what i mean so um, I see myself as more uh, a friendly abductor than a taxi driver when it comes to making music. <laughs> That's so dope. <laughs> Friend, friendly abductor from Detroit. We, we had uh, Apollo Brown on the program not too long ago. That's my and, world, yeah. Yeah, he, he has a dope basement as well. Um, so he... <laughs> We asked him this question and I'd love to get your take on it. Um, yeah. 
is there is there a Detroit sound? I know if mm-hmm. somebody says Detroit, I get certain images and I think about certain sounds. But you, as as an artist who's from there, who's been been through these waves, you talked about. Is there a sound, and if so, like what is that? Yeah. Okay. It's funny too because I actually listened to that show and I heard that question. So. Oh wow! Wow. <laughs> wow. <I'm ready. laughs> Thanks, man. That's so, so, um, to to answer to answer the question, I think is 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 multiple Detroit sounds, okay. but I would say I think that there is also a uh, a ubiquitous thread that weaves throughout all of Detroit sonic expressions, and I'll give you an example. I don't know how much you guys are familiar with this new wave of street rap that's coming from Detroit, like Sada Baby. And then there's, you know, there's the payrolls and the PZs. And uh, it's, it's more like the street rap side of Detroit music. And a lot mm-hmm. of people uh, talk about how these guys kind of rap ahead of the beat a little bit. Or it's, it's like it seems a little T- bit. Oh, T Grizzly type of. T Grizzly, yeah. all those guys. Yeah. Gang Gang, Shred Gang. Like, and if you notice, like, yeah, there's there's like, it sounds like they're ahead of the beat sometimes, or there's a pocket that that's a little bit kind of southpaw, right? And I know people, even people here, that sometimes are like on the, the more so like, boom bap side of things, or underground side of things. Like, man, they just they just off beat, and I'm like, no, like understand that, like in a lot of ways, to me, it mirrors. Dilla's refutation of the quantization. Mm. Like Detroiters are, are so much about locking into to a rhythm that is not confined to the metronome. And it has a relationship to it, but it's not confined to it, right? Because mm. like there's a flow, you know, when I run myself back, when I'm doing none of that, when I'm right? And people like, they're ahead of the beat. And when I started working with young guys that were doing that flow, and when I first heard it, I was like, you know, I'm, I'm like, say that again, thinking they're gonna say it different because they didn't have a, a concept but the, the, the rhythm, right? <laughs> said it the exact same way. Did it again, said it the exact, I'm like, oh shit, this is a pocket. This is a pocket, you know, and so, I think that the thread in Detroit sound is this this complete desire to find a sense of freedom within time, Hmm. right? And that's whether that's that's Detroit Techno and the Belleville Three, that's Dilla, the T Grizzly stuff, it's in everything. It's in everything, you know, so, I think like one thing about Detroiters, if you notice, like the Detroiters like to move. So a lot of times it has a little hitch to it. It has a little, like it jerks you a little bit, you know? <laughs> and so I think a lot of the sound that comes from here has um, immense consciousness in terms of its relationship to how a body moves when it's consumed. That affects the way the music sounds. That was well, such a great answer. Thank you. Uh, we all, we all want to sign up for your class. Uh, <laughs> Professor Tolls. Uh, 
I don't even know where to go next. I guess I would go here. Um, you seem like you are not just a hip hop guy, but you're really like a music guy. Right. Um, can we talk about a little bit of like the music you grew up on? Like how, how did you arrive at these, this kind of thought process and like, what, what's your biggest influences? Oh man. Yeah. So, um, like I was telling somebody the other day, um, you know, music is such a vital part of, of this city, man. It's, it's the backbone of the city. And I realized just recently, like, somebody brought up, like, the, the jazziness of the record. And, I'm, and it hit me for the first time. Like, look, like, I knew who Grover Washington was and who Michael Franks was before I knew who Michael Jackson was. Like, you know, we had a radio station called WJZZ that would play. It was a 24-hour jazz station in Detroit, you know. And, you know, like so much of that sound was, was in the city and around the city my entire childhood, you know. Um, listening to uh, Parliament Funkadelic, you know, as a kid, you know, before years later I would realize that these records were made here. And, you know, I wonder why, like, it's so much in my blood and in, in my heart, you know. And, you know, so from a very early age, you know, like, I had my own records because my father noticed that I was, like, really into music. And then when my cousin, like I was telling you, um, when, when he got in the industry, and I'm so grateful for this, so he, he was at Def Jam by 89. Like he was on the team when they brought third bass in. And I remember he playing the tape and he was like, what you think? I'm like, this is dope. He's like, you notice anything? I'm like, I don't notice nothing. He was like, listen again. I'm like, I don't notice nothing. He's like, listen again. It's like, they're white. I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I remind you. 89, like that was like unheard of. Like that was like, what? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So like he would send me literally boxes of tapes from all his label friends of like promotional stuff, stuff that never came out, stuff that just came out. And it allowed me to really get intimate with, with hip hop in a way in which a lot of other kids didn't, you know what I mean? So it's like, they on Ice Cube, and I'm like, hey, you ever heard of Kim Shabazz? And like, who is the fuck is that? Like, you know, like, I had all this shit, and I was listening to all of this shit, you know? So, um, yes, yeah, so like, that was very pivotal to me. And I had a cousin on uh, the east side that, that was like one of the first rappers in the city had to be, because there wasn't a lot of people doing it then, and like, I remember seeing him rap at a birthday party like about 1984. And I was like, okay, like, I, I, I'll do this now. You know what I mean? Like, this is, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. You know, so for a long time, I uh, was just into it and was freestyling and all of that stuff. And then, um, yeah, man, it, it was something that it was it was always there for me and I always had a lot of people around that would feed me stuff. And, you know, like my father was really into jazz. Um, and so like, I would listen to a lot of those records that he had when I was young. And um, Mojo was a big influence. You know, the electrifying Mojo is a DJ uh, in Detroit that kind of really like centralized the music culture from the late seventies to the mid eighties. 
And what Mojo did, what a lot of people don't know, Mojo was the guy that actually broke Prince. You know, it, it, Prince didn't take off immediately. And the first city to really jump on Prince was Detroit. And that was through the electrifying Mojo. And it, it, the thing about Mojo is that he kind of set the template for what you probably call the Detroit sound for everybody that came after his show. So in that sense, like he would play Parliament Funkadelic. He would play, uh, he would play Duran Duran. He would play like, he would, he would create an experience that was completely devoid of genre, which is the exactly same, it's the exact same thing I'm doing with this record, right? But like he kind of really expanded the sensibilities of Detroiters in a way in which we didn't necessarily care about genre, we cared about the groove and, and the energy in it, right? And so from that, you get, you get Dilla, you get uh, Detroit Techno, all of that comes from the, the stage that the electrifying mojo uh, set up, you know? And so we had a lot of cultural institutions within the city that really kind of like, uh, advanced and, and curated our sensibilities in a lot of ways, you know? So we had a dance show called The New Dance Show, and before that, it was a show called The Scene, and like, those are like our soul train. It's like we had our own media in a lot of ways that completely catered to uh, Detroit sensibilities. So I kind of come from that, man, where it's like I, I'm, I wanted to, through my music, kind of show uh, you know, just like the the kind of underbelly of the culture that a lot of people outside of the city uh, don't get to see, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so we so we we have Major on McNichols. It's out. Mm -hmm. You didn't have high hopes, but it's, it's <laughs> getting critical acclaim already. Um, does it does it make you? You've kind of mentioned not being a, a careerist. Do you mm -hmm. have something else in the in the pipe now that this is kind of taking off do you have designs on doing other similar work like kind of what's what's on the the horizon for you so uh what's immediately on the horizon is i'm working with a, a jazz duo called balance and it's the a pianist and a and a, a woodwinds player and uh, they're kind of from the same community community of guys that played on my record. And uh, so I'm producing some stuff on that record. And then from that point, like, to be real, I'm not sure. Like, you know, like, I, every project I've done, I've never known I was doing a project until it's like, oh, I'm doing a project. <laughs> you know. That's dope. Um, and, and two, like, because one thing I, I think about a lot of times is, is moving with intentionality. I'm not a volume guy. I'm like, I'm not a guy that's like making 50 beats a, a week or, or no shit like that. Like, I really like to develop things. And, um, you know, cause I see time as a container, you know? And if every action that I, I make in pursuit of creating a project is rooted in love, then say when that container is turned over, that's 12, years of love poured on the people, 13 or however many years it took. So one thing that I've always been intentional about, about with my process is 
to not be concerned with the outcome and completely immerse myself in the process. Because a lot of times I feel like people undercut the process to get to the outcome in which they want the love that comes from the outcome, whether that be from, you know, uh, the material things that it produces or people saying it's dope or whatever else. For me, it's like the promised land is the process. Like I really don't care what comes in the outcome because 100% of me goes into the process. And so a lot of times I feel like I don't necessarily choose projects, projects choose me. And so mm. I just have to be pliable enough and elastic enough to be able to accommodate what it needs of me for it to happen. So to answer your question, I don't have no goddamn clue necessarily <laughs> what. <laughs> what is that? You know, and so, yeah. and it was funny too, because me and Bodie the other day were talking about like, what we, you know, he's like, so what are we going to do for the next one? And I'm like, oh, okay, you know, so. Um, <laughs> so yeah, yeah it, it, it's pretty open, man. But um, I, I think for me too, like to not, get stuck in one place, you know? Cause one thing I always tell young guys is too, like, like you gotta understand I was somebody that watched this culture from the beginning. You know what I mean? Like I remember, I remember, uh, I'm 43. So I remember, um, you know, Sugar Hill Gang. And I remember uh, Grandma's Flash and Furious Five. And I felt my, like my, my parents' music. And then I remember hearing Warren DMC and being like, oh shit, like this is, this is, our music, and then thinking that's what it is, and then hearing Rakim for the first time being like, what the fuck? Like, he just completely, just completely just tore apart the Run DMC template of right. hip-hop making. And then, you know, here comes Public Enemy, and they tear up that template. And then, like, and I tell young guys, the only tradition in hip-hop is to defy tradition. That is the only tradition. So, it's funny because people are like calling me a jazz composer and all this stuff. I ain't mad at it. But to me, it's like, what hip hop is saying, I don't give a fuck what it was. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. Watch what it watch what it becomes. Watch what I make it become. You know? So to me, that's hip hop is a motherfucker. You know what I'm saying? The album, this album to me is hip hop is a motherfucker. You know what I mean? But I think one thing that we get wrapped up in is this idea of hip hop as a sound. And mm. I and I think that that happens too when we create a lexicon too, where sometimes there are uh, uh, critics in place and people in place that now define what it is sonically. But people have to understand the life of a culture is dependent on the vitality of the energy continuing to evolve you know so a lot of times you know that was the thing that kind of got me into all this other shit in the late 90s because i felt like a lot of hip-hop in the late 90s kind of like carried the template of the hip-hop of the early 90s to where it's like wait a minute we still have to keep moving forward you know what i mean like before come clean nothing sounded like come clean you know what i'm saying Mm -hmm. and Years after that, it was like making this, some shit to sound like Come Clean was hip hop. It's like, no, like you gotta stay, yeah, come, yeah. come clean. It, it, was, it was unprecedented <laughs> when it arrived. Right. And that's the spirit of it, you know? And so like, that's what eventually got me into Portishead and Massive Attack and 
uh, Aphex Twin and Square Pusher and all this stuff because I felt like they were continuing to push the possibilities and what we're able to do with these machines that now are in existence as a result of hip hop. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it's about the continuation of continuing to be open to, to knowing that the energy of the culture was meant to take on new forms and not be stagnant within a particular sound. You know, and I think it's beautiful to uphold certain moments, but we have to also be open to new ones, <laughs> you know. Right. right. Yes. And and Manger on McNichols, I just want to say it feels like a new moment. I don't I don't think we've heard this sonic landscape, this type of lyrical content, especially from somebody like Boldy, mm -hmm. who is at the top of his game uh right now and doing so much. So um, yeah. Really excited about that project. Everybody go hit up Bandcamp, um, interact with that project. And Sterling doesn't know what's next, but I'm excited for it. <laughs> whatever, whatever that ends up being, whenever it comes out, man, we, uh, we're excited. And we want to just thank you for being on the program, man. Thank you oh, so much. man, my pleasure, man. It's great to be with you guys, bro. Yeah, Appreciate I just, I have to say, like, uh, this has been such a great interview and you're an inspiring person. Like, I will be checking thank out you, everything man. you do from here on out because the way you expressed oh. yourself and the way that you were able to kind of um, just tell us what's really going on, I think was just, just really, really cool. And just thank you very much. Yeah, you know, if I could say real quick, like, I appreciate you saying that, because for me, like, this is the most important part of it all for me, the community of it. Mm -hmm. and, and people like, where did this guy come from? And it's like, I've been too busy in community to pursue a career. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, Bodie was a kid in my studio at wow. 17 years old. Dej Loaf was a kid in my studio at 15 years. Like, I've been in community with people through music because the beautiful thing about music is it gives people the opportunity to, to connect and explore each other in ways in which without music, we're gonna be a little bit more standoffish towards each other, each other or yeah. disconnected, you know, and so, I've always used music as a platform to create authentic intimacy from, with people in a way in which now our relationships begin to replicate the point of production, which is you take all these separate, separate elements, but the key is to make one, one thing with a series of elements, right? Mm -hmm. And through the instruments listening to each other and corresponding with each other and being in consideration of each other and having compassion for each other and giving each other space. Like music is the blueprint for the possibility of humanity, right? And so for me, I never lose that focus. Like music is here to remind me that I am able to engage with people and through like receiving them lovingly and compassionately allows us to emote something collectively now that's beautiful than just us playing solos the rest of our goddamn lives. <laughs> you man, know what I mean? That's so perfect, man. So, yeah. <laughs> wow. Thank, wow. Thank you so All much. Right. Yeah, yeah, man. Yeah. Thanks Jules. so much, man. Jules. Super appreciate it. Super appreciate, appreciate your time, man. It's so dope. Man, appreciate y'all, man. Much love, man. Thank you so much for listening to me. Absolutely. Man. Yeah, Absolutely. it was a pleasure. Yeah, All right, take care of yourself. Right, peace, um, man. Boy, we'll catch catch up with you some other time. Absolutely. All right. Thanks, Max. Peace. Peace.
Dad Bod Rap Pod. That was our conversation with Sterling Tolls, who's just brilliant, man. Like, that was some shit. Fucking like, brilliant. Sometimes in the interview, you're thinking of the next question, and you're kind of trying to see what's going on. You're trying to structure it in mm-hmm. your mind. Um, I found myself just being like, I would read this dude's books. I would totally. go to his TED Talk. I would, yeah. So I, I really appreciate him coming on, man. It was just such a dope. It's kind of cool. We found out for whom the bell tolls. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for saving that until after he was off the line. I know, I know. I was I dying, that dying yeah. to pun his name the whole time. Anyway, uh, what, a, what an interesting person. What a great outlook on music. I feel like I'm a better person right now. Yeah, totally. Like, not I even liked... like bullshitting, dude. It's so cool. <laughs> I yeah. loved his sort of uh, sense of community that, that just um, jumps off, you know, jumps off the paper when you talk to him. Um, and uh, to your point, uh, Damone, um, yeah, it was hard not to get enthralled while talking to him. I loved yeah. every one of his answers was like, um, wasn't even an answer. It was like setting right. up for this next awesome fucking statement. Yeah. yeah. Um, to your um. point, to your point, <laughs> Nate, uh, you, you know, when you called him a professor, yeah, I mean, dude is so professorial um, in, 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 in not a boring manner, obviously, yeah, in yeah. a manner that yeah. makes you want to like go to his class. But yeah, like the, you were the saying, cool professor who listens to P-Funk. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just almost encyclopedic sort of um, uh, examples of music. But I mean, I really, really loved how he's sort of this elder statesman and, and you know, how he says that he's a culturalist rather yeah you know what i mean and a, I mean, that and a careerist so right yeah um, i try Woo-hoo. to write down like look cool things people say or like little like phrases to maybe take for episode titles or to make mm-hmm, audiogram mm-hmm. things out of and like my notepad is full yeah it's like totally. every, everything yeah. this guy gems. says is like yeah gems, dude he's just dropping gems the, the, the last thing he kind of left us with where he, he was talking about the concept of music being the blueprint for the possibility of humanity. I'm like, you guys know, know I'm not a tattoo guy, but I'm going to have a <laughs> full back of that next time you see me at the beach. I'm like, that is one of the most interesting things I've ever heard anyone totally, say. Totally. I'm going to be thinking totally. about that for weeks. Well, he mentioned, I mean, I we didn't even get into it, but um, I was doing research and he started off as a rapper and I'm like, fuck man, I would love to hear his I want to hear these abilities. raps, dude. I don't hear right. these Vakim Shabazz-esque raps, dude. Exactly, dude. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that, that dude has gems for days. Totally. Yeah. Well, maybe we and should it, look it, into it was, that. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was great to hear him kind of talk about not having a, a plan after this, right? So it's kind of, in, in the regular model, this record is going to be critical acclaim. It's going to have a, a tremendous amount of attention. And in the typical modern model, he just does like 12 of these with a bunch of different people. But I get the sense he's really not going to do that. Yeah, like, that did not right. seem to be the plan at all. Right. Yeah. 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 So it'll be really interesting to kind of see um, where his, his project trajectory, perhaps Boldy's going to be like, oh, no, we have to do another one. Right. <laughs> like, there's, like, <laughs> there's too I much financial so. incentive. <laughs> well, Boldy's on a run. And I would, just, I would love to hear more from Sterling anytime. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, and now I'm so much more pissed I didn't buy the record. I know. Totally. Totally. I just looked on Discogs. They're going for like two to three hun. Oh, fuck. Good for them. They did, they did such a them. limited run, which is fine. And I understand Smart. it, but like, God damn it. Damn. Wish I would have copied well, it. It's interesting that he had not great expectations, which is just in a way refreshing, you know, because like, yeah, as, as hip hop artists, self-included, you always feel like your next shit is going to be 
so great and well received and and going into it with like no expectations um from an artist of his caliber working with baldy james um and you get the sense he was being 100 percent honest about that i don't 100%. think he was being like self-deprecating yeah. no i mean very earnest obviously they started this many years ago baldy got leveled up right pretty highly right. like you know i mean like the, the the price of tea in china like kind of like took him to a new level in terms of like rap yeah just like echelons being thought yeah. echelons thank you yeah so it, really good timing if you've been working on this magnus magnum opus thing for 10 years it's really good to have the guy you worked with become famous in between totally <laughs> and let you do it he yep. mentioned he's like i'm very grateful for to baldy for letting me do this right. and use these verses um yeah. and i think that it's it's kind of buried in there is that um baldy is not connected to uh, a major label situation in the way that a lot of rappers would be. If he's on Universal or something, right. they would this just be like, no. Out. This is the <laughs> yeah, shelf this is never thing. Yeah. yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, so shout out to uh, independent hip hop that's still living and breathing somehow. We're appreciative of Sterling Tolls for coming on the program and just dropping gems with us. This has been episode 132 of the Dad Bod Rap Pod. Nate, production note. John Morrison as well. Yes. I'm sorry, John. I'm sorry. Sterling Tolls blew my mind. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know who we were in the beginning of this episode, but I'm different now. We're like I different, am. better people now. Yeah. yeah. So uh, shout out to John Morrison. Uh, yeah. Like such a cool podcast. guy, and like just like I thought there was some nice synchronicity in that they both spoke very highly of freeform radio radio and like totally. how important yeah. it was to them and like that that it was yeah. a thing for them like this genreless blob of music mm -hmm. and like mm -hmm. you know that's i'll be you, there's a lot there um we yeah yeah, yeah it's it's a rich to come on that later <laughs> yeah shout out to john for sure i mean Absolutely. it's really good to, really good to see a really just nice knowledgeable dude just be handling all kinds of stuff and getting a little bit of recognition for it totally. so shout out to john and, and his, thank you again for your ability time. to quit his day job is deeply inspiring <laughs> Yes. Got to yes, be, gotta be yeah. clacking these keys a lot more. <laughs> to get that out at, at Dart Adams rates. Um, so this has been episode 132. We encourage you to interact with the Dad Bod Rap Pod on Twitter, at Dad Bod Rap Pod, on IG, at Dad Bod Rap Pod. If you haven't caught our Friday IG live sessions, you are missing out on Nate's record collection. If you are wondering what vinyl Renate has at the house uh, every Friday at five-ish PST. Uh, we're, we're getting down, um, just having an open-ended open, open -ended convo, folks coming through asking questions. Just showing you Mingus records, showing you Dave Van Ronk records, arguing yeah. about rap in the, in the comments. Uh, yeah, yeah it's, it's been fun. It's been a fun addition to the week. Uh, we need to get one where I'm not in it and it's just you guys. The, the stars will align. And then I'll get to watch yeah. it uh, heckle. There's, there's no, <laughs> we don't have cool backgrounds though. That's, that's what we're not mentioning about this. No, I got I'm cool always backgrounds. Like, <laughs> Dave's house I got is cool backgrounds. Cool. I just got to set it up. I mean, usually I'm just like it, it, in my boxers in the corner somewhere. You know what I mean? So, but same, Dave. Same. <laughs> don't let, so don't let this the Friday, camera drop. Dave. Yeah. Um, Keep your arm up. Yeah. Um, cool, guys. This was fun. Um, very good episode, I thought. And uh, we'll be we'll be back, huh? All right. I, I believe so. I think 132 will lead to 133 and very possibly 134. <laughs> this has been 
the dad bod rap pod.